Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. So, if you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, uh, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Luke, um, and we're kind of in a little mini-series right now, uh, looking at the problems with religion. Uh, this morning, is uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 11, verses 45 to 54, and the uh, sorry. <coughs> Thank you. The title of this sermon is The Problems with Religion, Part 2. Uh, and the main idea is that religion is insulted by the gospel. Now, that almost sounds like it would be a problem with the gospel, but it's not a problem with the gospel because the gospel is truth. It is God's truth. And if anything is insulted by God's truth, then it must not be something good. But religion, as we'll see in this text today, religion is insulted by the gospel. Uh, so I've got this broken down into uh, three divisions. Uh, the first is uh, verse 45 to 46, and that's insulting the experts. And then 47 to 52 is murdering the prophets. And then finally 43, I'm sorry, 53 to 54 is becoming hostile. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that's in your word. And Lord, as we open up your word, I pray, God, that you will show us who you are Show us how we are not like you, and help us, Lord, to surrender more to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, now, since this is part two, let's quickly review part one, which is verses 37 to 44, right? So Jesus was invited to a dinner at the Pharisee's house, at a Pharisee's house. Uh, when he entered the house and sat down to eat, Jesus didn't wash his hands. And the Pharisee was shocked that Jesus wouldn't wash his hands, that he wouldn't follow that rule of washing his hands. Now, the washing the hands before eating was not a law according to the law of Moses. It was a rule that had been set up in the, the Jewish tradition and the Jewish custom. Um, but the Pharisee was shocked that Jesus wouldn't follow this rule to wash his hands. And I, I did kind of mention that, yeah, it's a good idea for us to wash our hands before we eat, but it's not because we get any righteousness for that. It's just good practice. Uh, Jesus quickly, though, he quickly... Uh, criticized the Pharisee and, well, all the Pharisees for their legalism and their self-righteous attitude. Jesus pointed out that their rules don't actually do anything to clean their hearts. Instead, these acts of self-righteousness only uh, fill their hearts with hate and greed, uh, and it leads to a self-righteous attitude. Uh, they are so careful to pay attention to even the smallest and least important parts of the law while ignoring God's character. Jesus finally says that, that this legalism is keeping them out of heaven and is dragging others down with them. Instead of focusing on outward cleanliness, they should focus on issues of God's character like justice and mercy. This week, we get to see how this story continues. They're still at this Pharisee's house and they're still at this dinner party. And so we pick up in verse 45. Here we go. Verse 45. Teacher, said an expert in religious law. You have insulted us too in what you just said. Yes, said Jesus. What sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law? For you crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. So we start with, let's talk about this, uh, this person. It says he's a, an expert in religious law. Other translations will call him a scribe, uh, and that's what he is. That would have been his actual title. He was a scribe. An expert in religious law is more of a description of what he does. They're both correct, um, but since he is an expert in religious law, you can probably guess that he also struggled with legalism 
a lot like the Pharisee. So let's, uh, let's really, un- in order to really understand what's really going on, we need, to, we need to get into the detail about these scribes. Who were they? What did they do? Well, the scribe had two primary roles. First, it was their job to preserve the, the Jewish sacred text by making copies of the text. Right? Obviously, they didn't have digital copies that they could just go over to the computer and hit the print button and they would print them out. They didn't have copiers that they could go and lay it down the original and make copies of it. They didn't have a printing press that they could go and, and make copies. Any new copies of the scripture had to be handwritten. And the way that that would actually work is they, they would have like a chief scribe sitting at the front of a room and then a room full of scribes. And the chief scribe, he would read from the scripture and then the other scribes would copy down what was being said. And so in doing so, they could make lots of copies um, in a quicker way. It still wasn't quick, not like it is today, but it would have been quicker than it was uh, just one person sitting in a room and reading and, and writing and then reading and writing. It would have taken a whole lot longer. Um, they sat, these scribes are the ones who sat and wrote copies of the Old Testament by hand. Therefore, they were very familiar with the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch. This is the first five books of the Bible. It's what we call the law or the law of Moses. That's the Pentateuch. All right. Second, the second job that they had, uh, they had this, this depth of knowledge of the law so they could draft legal documents uh, like contracts or marriage certificates or loans, mortgages, property deeds, deeds of sale, things like that. All right. that, that's, that was another aspect of their job. And since they had this Old Testament knowledge and this legal authority, they used their position to write and and modify and enforce that tradition of the elders that we talked about last week. Remember, this tradition of the elders was a set of rules that was originally intended to help the Jews not to break the law, right? So the law is set here, and the rules were set a little bit broader. So as long as you don't break the rules, you're not going to break the law. That was the idea behind it. But then they started to think of these rules as just as important as the law, or sometimes even maybe more important. All right, so this expert in religious law says that, tells Jesus, you have insulted us too in what you just said. Right, this is a different group than the Pharisees. The scribe is telling Jesus that he must have accidentally insulted the scribes too. Jesus surely didn't mean to insult them too, right? He, would, he wouldn't rebuke that much of the religious leadership all together in one fell swoop, would he? He wouldn't want to, to take on both groups at the same time, right? Well, I can, co- I, I can sort of see this scribe sitting there as Jesus is rebuking the Pharisee. And the scribe's sitting there, and he's, he's thinking, yeah, those Pharisees, they're so self-righteous. They need to be put in their place. Good job, Jesus. Way to go. Put them in their place. Tell them how they're doing everything wrong. And then all of a sudden, he, Jesus says something, and it kind of throws the, fer- the, the scribe under the bus too. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. You went too far, man. You didn't mean to insult us too, did you? Like, you were right on all that stuff. They're doing all that bad stuff. But not me, right? It wasn't me. I'm not that bad. Well, I also want you to notice that the scribe, he doesn't speak up in defense of the Pharisee. Like I said, he probably agreed at least somewhat with what Jesus was saying. But as soon as Jesus said something to offend him, he was very quick to speak up. See, it's easy for us to stand idly by and watch as someone else is held accountable for their sins while we ignore our own sins. We can read about the dumb things that the apostles did in the New Testament and think that we wouldn't do the same thing. We can read about other people's sins in the Bible and think that we're not struggling in the same way. But God didn't put these stories in the Bible for us to condemn the mistakes of other people. 
God didn't put these stories in the Bible for us to laugh at how dumb the apostles were sometimes. God put these stories in the Bible for us almost like a mirror into our own lives. So when we read these stories where Jesus is condemning the Pharisees, instead of standing there and pointing at the Pharisees and saying, yeah, you're so bad, maybe we should take that and look, use it more like a mirror and make sure that we're not doing the same thing that the Pharisees are. Or when we read through, and we were kind of picking on Peter this morning in Sunday school about how Peter will open his mouth sometimes before he knows what he's saying. He'll just kind of open his mouth and put his foot in. But when we, instead of you know, picking on Peter, maybe we should make sure we're not making the same mistakes as Peter. Or we talk about doubting Thomas because he was, he was so quick to doubt what the other, uh, uh, the other apostles were telling him. So, oh, that doubting Thomas, shame on him. When maybe we should make sure that we're not doubting Jesus in our own lives. God didn't put these stories in the Bible for us to condemn the mistakes of the biblical characters. He put these stories here to show us how they failed as a warning against failing in the same way in our own lives. When we read these stories, instead of condemning them for their sins, we need to examine our own lives to ensure that we're not sinning in the same way. So Jesus is sitting there, and he's criticizing the Pharisee, and the scribe is in agreement until Jesus says something that also insults the, the scribe. And the scribe says, wait, 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 wait. You didn't, mean to act, you didn't mean to insult us too, right? Jesus says, yes. What sorrow awaits you, you uh, what sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law, for you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. Jesus is very quick with his reply. Yes, you too. Yes, you, scribe, just as guilty as the Pharisee. It might not be the exact same guilt, but their guilt is just as bad. See, these scribes were the ones who wrote that Jewish religious custom. They wrote those rules that the Pharisees were using to promote their own self-righteousness. Jesus says that these religious demands are unbearable. They go too far. One thing to note is that uh, this reprimand from Jesus is not something that, that he only speaks behind closed doors. Because later, we'll read, or later in Matthew 23, after these scribes and Pharisees refuse to repent of their own of their sins, Jesus rebukes them publicly as well. Like I said, that's in Matthew 23. Uh, this comes between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. It's that week between where the Jews welcome Jesus into Jerusalem as their Messiah, and then they sacrifice, or they, they, they killed him as a blasphemer. So Matthew 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey what they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they preach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Verse 4 right there is almost an exact quote from this rebuke uh, that Jesus gives them in a more private setting at this dinner party. It's almost exact quote. They're using these extra rules to, imp- uh, sorry, to oppress the Jews. Right? The law of God is intended to glorify God by reflecting his character. It's written from his wisdom, and it was his wisdom that formed these laws, his wisdom and his love that formed these laws. We know that since God is wise and loving, obedience to him will lead to the greatest human flourishing. But these scribes, they had expanded on God's law. Instead of their rules leading to human flourishing, the people were tormented by these rules. 
Instead of these rules leading to people displaying God's character, they stood by heartlessly and watched as people struggled to obey. Instead of justice and mercy and love, it's torture. The language that Jesus uses suggests that that there's a great amount of effort put towards making people's lives worse. He says you crush people with unbearable religious demands. To crush something takes force. You have to put some effort into that. But then he says you never lift a finger to ease the burden. They go through all this effort to crush people, but they're unwilling to put even the smallest bit of effort into helping. This is the sin of the scribes. This is how the expert in religious law are just as guilty as the Pharisees. This is the sin that we are at risk of, uh, we're at risk of failing to as well. While most of us would not consider ourselves to be experts in religious law, most of us in here did grow up in church. Most of us are much more familiar with the content of the Bible than most non-church folk. We have this idea of what church is supposed to be, what church is supposed to look like, how you're supposed to act at church, how you're supposed to act as a Christian. While some of these ideas might be biblical, we have to watch out for those things that are merely cultural. We must be careful not to place our own cultural expectations above the gospel. What does this look like? It's not easy to answer because it's different for every church. It's different for every community. It's even different for each and every person. But I can... I can give you one example. The first year I went to Toronto, my mind was blown as to how different worship can look. So there were several summers that I went up to Toronto on a mission trip to help a church planter there. Um, And he was working in Toronto trying to uh, plant churches. He had a vision for planting, I think it was 10 churches in 10 years in the city of Toronto. Um, And there was just a lot of different things that he was doing throughout the city. So one day... We drove down to Parkdale. We drove up to a Salvation Army thrift store. You know, they have the Salvation Army thrift store just like we do. And we walk into the back, not through the back door. We walk in through the front door, but we walk to the back. And we're sitting there on the couches, the couches that are for sale. And we have a church service right there. Sitting at the back of the Salvation Army thrift store, sitting on the couches that are for sale. A few days later, we had church in the backyard of a refugee home while we were eating dinner. There's a church service sitting right there in the backyard of this refugee home. My mind was blown because church didn't have to be in a certain building or didn't have to to look a certain way. Yes, we sang songs, but they didn't have to sound a certain way. We didn't have to wear certain clothes. It didn't have to be on a specific day or a specific time or have a certain order of service. All these, these rules that my mind was stuck with when it came to what church is supposed to be, what, what church is supposed to be, all those rules were just they were blown away because it was so much different. Now, when we look at what's going on in the Bible and what's considered to be a worship service in the Bible or, or coming together as believers in the Bible, we were doing that in Toronto. But it looked way different from what I grew up in going to a conservative Southern Baptist church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. Everything was different, except for what really mattered. Everything was different, except for the gospel and surrender to Jesus. We must make sure that we are not placing our own cultural expectations on the gospel. 
Just because our American Christianity, or specifically our Victory Baptist Church flavor of Christianity, looks one way, that doesn't mean that that's the only way that Christianity is supposed to look, or maybe not even the best way. Moving on, before I dig too deeper in that, too much deeper in that. Starting in verse 47, Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you? For you build monuments for the prophets, your own ancestors killed long ago. But in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God and his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute others. All right, so here are a few examples of Old Testament prophets that were killed by the Old Testament leaders. Isaiah. Isaiah was sawn in two by the king of Judah. Micah was killed by the king of Israel. Amos was tortured by the high priest and then killed by the priest's son. The Old Testament Zechariah, I'll specify Old Testament Zechariah because there's Zechariah in the New Testament too, right? So Old Testament Zechariah was killed by the king of Judah. I mean, when you think about it, one of the jobs of the prophets was to point out the sins of the religious and and political leadership of, uh, of the Jews in that time or the Israelites at that time. So it seems pretty common that they're sitting there, they're making all these powerful people angry. It's pretty likely that they're going to get killed for that. The religious leaders in Jesus' time, apparently, specifically the scribes, would go out and build monuments over the graves of these Old Testament prophets who had been killed by the Old Testament leaders. Though the scribes were building monuments to them, Jesus says that they stand in agreement with those who killed them. Why would he say that? Well, it's pretty widely known that John the Baptist was beheaded by King Herod. And while King Herod is not a scribe, we know that the religious leaders had their problems with John the Baptist. Jesus is saying that they are just as guilty as their ancestors who killed the Old Testament prophets. Therefore, in building monuments to honor those prophets, it's hypocrisy. And boy, howdy, if that doesn't sound a whole lot like what I was just talking about with us condemning biblical figures for their sins while ignoring our own sins. Jesus says, As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets, from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. The phrase that Jesus uses, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, it's intended to be inclusive of all of the Old Testament prophets, or all of the murders of the Old Testament, right? Abel, Abel was the first person murdered in the Old Testament. And Zechariah, who chronologically was the last prophet killed in the Old Testament. This phrase is is something like saying from the head to the toe when we're talking about our whole body. So Jesus says from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, all those murders, you scribes, are guilty of all of those. Because they're standing in agreement with the sins of their ancestors, they share in that guilt. Not only do they agree with their actions, but they continue those actions. Therefore, the guilt of all those murders will be given to the scribes. It's important to note, very important to note, that the guilt of the ancestors is not given to the scribes just because they are the descendants. This guilt is not added to them until they also participate in the sin. And just because your parents or grandparents sinned in some certain way does not mean that you're guilty of that sin as well. Also, if you are a parent, that means that your sins, the guilt from your sins is not going to be passed down to your children either. That is, unless they pick up and continue those sins as well. 
or you, as a child of your parents, their sins, the guilt from their sins is not going to be given to you until you start to participate in those sins as well. But since these scribes are continuing the sin of killing prophets, they will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world. Jesus continues, What sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law? For you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. So not only does their legalism and their hypocrisy keep them out of heaven, it also pushes other people away from God too. Their practice of adding new rules to the strict and, sorry, and the strict enforcement of these rules keeps other people from knowing the true character of God. It keeps people from knowing the love of God, the justice of God, and the wisdom of God that we're supposed to learn from His law. The scribes don't go to heaven, but they're also keeping other people out too. Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you? Hmm. There we go. Yeah, what sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law? So here again, we see Jesus proclaiming sorrow for the scribes. Last week, he proclaimed sorrow for the Pharisees, and now it's the scribes' turn. Other translations use the word woe. Right? This woe, is, uh, woe or sorrow is the opposite of a blessing. So these people are not blessed. Instead, they are headed straight for hell. Their legalism and their hypocrisy will keep them out of heaven but maybe even worse, since they're pushing others away from God, there seems to be some extra punishment for them. They should know God. They should know God's expectations for them, and they should be drawing others towards God. Instead, they're doing the opposite of that. They claim to have God's wisdom, but they don't know Him at all. They are lost, and they are keeping others from Him. Last week, I said the problem with religion is that it is opposed to the gospel. This week, I could add that the opposition goes so far that it competes against the gospel and pushes others away. When we look at our lives, we must ensure that we are not pushing others away from the gospel. We must ensure that we are not adding things to the gospel that would insult others. Right? The scribes are criticized for their hypocrisy. Does our hypocrisy drive others away from the gospel? The gospel itself can be offensive to hear because it confronts us with our sin. We must make sure that we are not adding to that offense with our own rules. I'm going to say that again because that's, that's important to note. The gospel itself can be offensive because it points out our sins. We must make sure that we are not adding to the offense with extra rules, with our own added stuff. The gospel itself can be offensive because it points out our sins, but there's good news that goes with that. It doesn't just point out our sins. It gives us the answer to our sins. Yes, we are sinful. We are all sinful. We all deserve hell. But Jesus came and he took the punishment that we deserve. He died on the cross so that we could be saved. Through faith in him, he gives us his righteousness. We don't have to follow a set of rules to have righteousness. We can't earn righteousness by following a set of rules because we are sinful. But Jesus gives us his righteousness when we place our faith in him. When we place our faith in him, he restores our relationship with our creator and we can have heaven forevermore. We can have that perfect relationship with God forevermore. The story is not done yet. As Jesus was leaving, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile 
and tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. See, these Pharisees and scribes, they were so insulted by Jesus that they chose to become his enemy. This enmity would eventually lead to them conspiring to kill Jesus. Earlier, Jesus accused them of killing the prophets. They would go on to kill Jesus, the greatest prophet of all. But for now, instead of conspiracy to murder, they still think that they can beat him with their mind games. If they could somehow show everyone else that they are smarter than Jesus, they could prove him wrong and vindicate themselves. Jesus, obviously he hadn't done anything wrong. Because if he had, then they would have gone ahead and arrested him, and they'd used Jesus' wrongdoing to criticize and discredit him. Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. They have nothing. So they try to trap him with tricky questions and, and hypothetical situations about the law and its application so they can prove themselves. Remember, these scribes and these Pharisees, they love the seats of honor and respectful greetings, but Jesus had just insulted their honor and disrespected them. <clears throat> From this point forward, you'll see that these seemingly difficult or philosophical questions come up from the religious leaders more and more as they try to trap Jesus. So our application from this passage. What's our application? First uh, is to, well, our no being due application. First is to know. Know that religion is insulted by Jesus. Remember, religion says if you follow these rules, you can be good enough and you can earn your righteousness. But Jesus says, no, you are sinful and you cannot earn your, earn, your, earn your own righteousness. Those laws that you're following will only lead to hell. Just like those unrighteous people that you think you're so much better than. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop there. He does not merely insult. Instead, he offers to give us his righteousness. He came to this earth and he lived the perfectly righteous life. He never sinned. Not one single blemish. But he took our punishment. The punishment that we earned with our sin he died on the cross in our place. When we place our faith in him, he forgives our sins and he gives us his righteousness. None of our rules, none of our actions could do it, but he loves us enough to do it for us. Our B application is to be sincere in faith. See, Jesus confronted the Pharisees and the scribes for their hypocrisy. They claimed to know God. They claimed to know how to please God. Instead, they didn't know God. They knew rules. They didn't know God. They knew religion. They didn't know how to please God. They knew how to make themselves feel better. They knew how to push people away from God. They knew how to anger God. We claim to be people of the gospel. We claim to be forgiven of our sins. We claim to be changed by the Holy Spirit. Well, are you truly surrendered to the gospel? If you have been forgiven... Does that forgiveness show in the way that you forgive others? If you are changed by the Holy Spirit, do you still sin the same way that you did before you were saved? Do you draw others toward God with your faith, or does your religiosity push others away from God? And our due application is to hunt your religiosity. Hunt your religiosity. And I mean, you know, when you, you think about going on a hunt, you come, you have your weapon, and you're going out and you're seeking your prey. You're doing everything you can to make sure that you kill that prey. Right now, 
religiosity is the prey that we need to go out and hunt in our own lives. The the religiosity that so doomed the Pharisees and the scribes is common, and it's easy for us to fall into. This is because of our merit-based mindset. I've done something good, and I deserve something good because of it. Now think about your work. You work hard. Hopefully you work hard. You work hard at your work, and you expect to be paid for it. That's fair. We must be careful not to let that seep into our relationship with God. We must not think that we can merit our way to God. We cannot earn it. We must watch out that we are not holding other people to our own cultures and customs. Pray for God to show you where your religiosity might be seeping into your heart. Pray that he will kill that spirit of religiosity so that you can better know him and draw others towards him as well. So again, our application is to know that religion is insulted by Jesus, to be sincere in your faith, and to hunt your religiosity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for your word. God, this morning, I pray that that this word seeps down deep into our hearts. Show us, God, where we are sinning like these Pharisees and like these scribes. Show us where our rules and our traditions might be getting in the way of sharing your character, of sharing your gospel and drawing others towards you. Help us, God, to lay those customs or those rules aside and hold only to the gospel. Help us, Lord. We claim to be people of the gospel. Help us to be surrendered to you and your gospel and your wisdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit victorybaptisthopemills.com or facebook.com slash vbchopemills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.